0: Hello and welcome to Academy Conversations Uncut, a podcast of rare Q and A's with the world's foremost filmmakers, hosted by the Academy and released for the first time to the public, unedited. Today's panel was recorded in August, 2019 at the Samuel Goldwyn Theater in Beverly Hills, California, discussing the Academy Award-winning documentary feature, American Factory, the story of a Chinese billionaire opening a factory in an abandoned General Motors plant in Ohio. We were joined by producer and director Stephen Bogner, producer Julie Parker, editor Lindsey Utes, and composer Chad Cannon. The panel was hosted by John Horn. Here's John.
1: Hello, everybody. I'm John Horn, the host of The Frame on KPCC. Thank you all for coming out. Um, I want to bring up our panel. Uh, starting with director and producer Steve Bogner, uh, producer Julie Parker Brunello, editor Lindsay Utes, and composer Chad Cannon. Steve, I will talk about the film in a second, but I have one political question. Is the glass in the factory exempt from the t- tariffs
2: or not because they're made in US? It is exempt because <laughs> it's all made in the Midwest. It starts as sand in Illinois and comes over to Ohio where they make the windshields. So it's the one Chinese company that is exempt from the auto tariffs. The chairman can predict the weather and he can predict <laughs> the future about the tariffs.
1: Uh, I want to ask you about a recent screen of this film, very recent. You took this film back to Ohio, I think, last night. What was that like and how was it, what, what did it feel like to show it to the local people?
2: We had been anticipating this moment for months. We had our Dayton, Ohio premiere last night. Julie was there too. And this is two weeks after Dayton was attacked. We had a mass shooting, as you heard. The town has been grappling with and struggling uh, with the aftermath of that. And we weren't even sure if it was like the right thing to do to have a, you know a thousand people come together at a movie kind of event. But it was overwhelmingly wonderful to be together and uh, very powerful, very moving. And and to see the folks in the film just showing up and. All doll- Everyone was all dolled up. It was just wonderful. Uh, we were all hugging each other and getting pictures. And yeah, it was, it was just, and then and, and the film played great. The room was alive, and it was really great.
1: This movie, I think, really started in December of 2008. And that's when The Last Truck rolled off that plant. And you made a short film about it called The Last Truck. How did that film lead to this film? And did you think you were done with the story when you made The Last Truck?
2: Totally done. We thought we'd never go back into that factory. That film is an HBO film. was came out in 2009 and we were living our lives. But in twenty, late 2014, the chairman bought the plant and in early 2015, we got a call saying, um, you know what's going on down at the old GM plant? We had read the paper. Yeah, it's big, big news. But we weren't thinking we would make a film. We, You know, GM never let us into the GM plants. We, We did all kinds of different things to get cameras in that plant, but we weren't, tr- we weren't sort of gunning to get into this plant. And then the, some of the folks who had wooed Fuyao to come to Dayton called us, because we know them, and they said, you know, we started talking. Someone's got to document this. It's going to be big. It's going to be historic. How about you guys? And they, the, comp- the original plan was that the company would hire us to make a, like a film. Which we don't do. The company meeting. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but we. So we said, you know, we'll, we're interested. It does sound really like a big story, an important, relevant story. But we'll do it, if, it if, if it's our film, if we own it, if we have editorial control. You don't give us any money, and yet you give us real access. And the chairman thought about it and said yes. Thought about it and said
1: yes because I think without Chairman Chow's participation, you have no movie. When you are having conversations with him, and obviously he gives you tremendous access, what were his concerns? And did he let you do what you wanted to do outside of filming the anti-union meeting?
2: I mean, I think in the early days, the, the thought of how this would go was so much like a smooth road that it was easy to say yes, it was easy to sort of welcome us in because it's all this sort of wonderful, frothy kind of cultural intersections happening. And so in the early days, I mean the chairman was like, yeah, look, this is my story, this is what I'm trying to do and you know, go for it. The reality is when you make a documentary that if you show up day after day after day, and we live 25 minutes from that plant, we went there hundreds of times. We have 1,200 hours of footage that this amazing woman put together. But um, we ha- we were there so often that we just became normalized. And as things got hard, I mean, I'm sure they talked about, should we kick these filmmakers out? But it was never like a hot topic. We were told there was a few meetings here and there. We weren't allowed to film. Uh, but plenty of stuff we were. And it, it just... You know, the slowly boiled frog doesn't notice it's boiling. Like, <laughs> we we were just always there. And then, so yeah. We, yeah. Julie, I want to ask you what
1: that means logistically as a producer. Because as a documentary, you're not only telling a story, but you're casting it with characters and people. And when you're shooting a lot of footage, you're also trying to figure out who the people are who are going to help you tell that story. And it obviously takes a while, but how does the film evolve in terms of the people who are going to lead us through this tale and how did you end up settling on the people that you picked, including people who don't speak English?
3: Yeah. I mean, I really that's Steve and Julia as the as the co-directors here who had, you know, been in the plant. Some of the people were in the last truck, like Bobby Allen. And um, so they, were, they came back for the, the second film. Um, but you all were in there day in, day out, and really you know, knew who was emerging as your main characters. Wong, I think, is an incredible character in the film, and Rob Hare and Jill Lamancia. I mean, really, I think you know, they emerged over time with you know, filming in there day in, day out.
1: Lindsay, documentary filmmakers can shoot 300 hours, 400 hours. This is 1,200 hours. Shot over what time period? Three years. Three years. At what point do you come onto the project, and how do you start to figure out what that story is? Because you could make 1,200 different films. <laughs>
4: um, <clears throat> there's so, there's like 1,200 different ways I can answer that, <laughs> answer that question. Um, Uh, Yeah, I've never seen so much footage. It was a lot. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's okay. I forgive you. Um, No, I, I think it's, I'm really, I tend to be attracted to these types of projects where a director, and in this case, directors are so immersed in the story, so dedicated to following The action on the ground for years at a time and I don't know if I'm just a glutton for punishment or what but like I just like that kind of filmmaking because it yields the most incredible scenes and it's like the the downside is you have to really wade through all that material and dig for the stuff that Shines and um, you know it's a discovery process on any documentary film as you're working through all that raw footage and on this one it was particularly so um, because a lot of the footage hadn't been translated when we started editing and so you know it was clear what some of the big scenes were in English but we didn't have I didn't have like a Chinese co-producer sitting with me at all times I did sometimes but there was a lot of sort of watching the verité material looking at the body language trying to figure out if something was happening that seemed worth <laughs> getting you know translated and honestly it was sort of like Seems like there's something funny happening here, or something, you know, tense happening here. And you can see that even if you don't speak the language. And so it was a you know, I had an enormous post-production team. I did not do this alone. I had incredible assistants, translators, co-producers, and we just set up a system in which we kind of identified what we wanted to have translated, and then we were able to get that back in, caption it, and really watch it. You know, as a verite scene translated, and that when that happened, I think the story really blew up for all of us. We realized this was much bigger, you know. Than I mean, you right? Yeah. I mean, then we had. A, I mean, we knew it was a big story, but when you get to the translations back, it sort of. But early I, on, but,
2: yeah. early on, Lindsay gave us a challenge. She, she said, like, let's. What if we say we're going to build the architecture of the film on the verite scenes because we had also done a zillion interviews right. on camera interviews beautifully lit I worked my ass off to light <laughs> these beautiful frames but you know verite has a magic to it right. if if it's true and 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 that was a great instinct that you had because ultimately we had the goods we had the material in the verite and and that's the foundation of the film well there's
1: no frame I think even we don't even hear Steve or your co-director Julia at all and that has to require a lot of work too that not only are you making that choice but you never are aware of their presence Mm -hmm. editorially and that has to be something not only you decided to do but also probably involves losing some things that might be good where you hear their voices is that right lindsay
4: yeah i mean i think uh you know i think the best editing is the most invisible editing you know if it's not it, it tends to, the editing that's talked about is the flashy editing, the stuff that is, you know, quiet and, and in the background, I think, is, is hard to do, but important. And and the idea behind that is to let the drama and the emotion of the scene take center stage and not, you know, me doing something fancy. I mean, there are some sequences that are, you know, fancy, but I think, you know, it's it's what does the footage call for, what is, you know, and I think as an editor, I'm always letting the footage kind of guide how I cut it.
1: Chad, I wonder if that same idea transfers to what you're doing, scoring, to not make the obvious more obvious, to make sure that the story tells itself. But also, how do you see your role in terms of making
5: a thematic score to tie all these stories together? Well, the wonderful thing is, by the time I saw anything, Lindsay had already cut most of it. (laughs) So it was already in a beautiful state by the time I was brought on. Um, I would say the primary thing I tried to contribute to this film was taking the things that the characters are teaching us, um, especially Wong. He was someone that I was really drawn to. This friendship between... This is the furnace worker. Yeah, the friendship between Wong and Rob. Mm -hmm. is just this beautiful, like, brotherly love they have for each other even though they hardly understand each other there's something deeper connecting them and musically I tried to a, a lot of the score has duets there's these two things going on we have two countries that are coming together and in the case of Robin Wong it's just this two friends and so like the closing sequence it's this big duet between two two things and they're harmonizing and trying to add hope to to uh, what could be a, a very bleak outlook on this film, but it also seems intentional that you're not orchestrating it in the
1: obvious way, where there might be Asian instruments for a certain sequence, and obviously heavy modern Western instruments in another. That they're neutral in some ways.
5: Exactly. Yeah, we we talked about whether we should do some source music from Fujian, or but ultimately we felt um, to keep to keep it more broad in appeal and also in understanding that we kept it more more focused on the emotion. I think we
2: briefly even tried some kind of certain Asian or even Chinese instrumentation and it just felt like wrong. You know, this is an American film and we're not Chinese and we shouldn't (laughs) pretend to be Chinese. Steve, something happens in the film where
1: there are workers from American workers who go to China and their eyes are open for better and for worse. And I'm wondering, as a filmmaker, when you go along with them, does it change your understanding of the movie you're making and of the dynamic between the two
2: countries? Completely. It deepened it dramatically for us. What Wong was missing, we only knew in the abstract until we went to China. You know, he's here stuck in Ohio, and he's missing his, his culture, his food, his family. Okay, so we all I can say those words but that they don't have impact. When we went to China, it was just this immersion into this deeply rich, beautiful, overwhelmingly um, alive culture, community, world. The intensity of it, uh, I fell in love with. I mean, we didn't, and I didn't anticipate that. We were going to go, we were in a third tier, what they call a third tier city. It's like um, the Dayton Ohio of China it's not like Chicago or Cleveland or New York or LA it's it's and yet even in that quote-unquote third tier city the streets were so um, vibrant and the people were so warm and connected and you f- I just really felt like okay this is what he's missing this is what all these these folks who who ended up in Ohio from China are missing and so I f- you know in terms of I mean, one of the goals with the films is are trying to build empathy for people who maybe don't talk to each other or don't get each other and going to China deepened that in a huge way.
1: You're shooting over three years, and during those three years, something material happens in the United States, and that is that Donald Trump is elected. And yet, that almost feels like it's background music. So did you film that when it happened, and did it feel superfluous? How did you edit it
2: out? Yes and yes.
5: Okay. <laughs> we
2: shot... You know, Trump did a big rally in Dayton. Uh, John Kasich, his rival at the time, did a rally in the factory. We filmed all this stuff. We filmed uh, Debbie Trump. Uh, we had a character <laughs> we, who, who calls herself Debbie Trump. She loves. She's a pro-union factory worker who loves Donald Trump, and we had. She's also a Las Vegas former Las Vegas showgirl who appeared on the Academy Awards in 1983. (laughs) She showed us a YouTube video of herself on the Oscars in 83, dancing.
4: This scene was in the film for a while. It was. We wanted to
2: develop her, but the reality is all... the the That's in American Factory 2. Yeah. Uh, The the stuff that's going on in the film, the global tectonic plates moving, the forces that are impacting working people in China and in, in the U.S., around the world, predate the Trump administration, they predate the Obama administration, and they will outlast the Trump administration, even if there's a second term. It's like these are global forces. And so the election of 2016 felt irrelevant. And, and also kind of old, old news. Julie, this
1: film has the Netflix logo on it. But people who know the film know Netflix bought it out of the Sundance Festival. What did it take to get it made? Um, and how hard was it to get all the pieces to fit together?
3: Well, it, the The first time I saw a clip of the film was Julia Reichert, Steve's uh, directing partner and partner in life, who's in New York tonight. Um, It was nominated for uh, Chicken and Egg, which is a company I started that supports women filmmakers. She was nominated for an award, and she had applied with two films, uh, 9 to 5 and uh, the Chinese Factory film. So there's about 10 minutes of footage, and I think this was back in about... December of 2015, if I recall. And I remember I, I was on the panel selecting the finalists for the Chicken and Egg Award and saw the footage and thought, oh my gosh, you got a front burner, that film. And so Yvonne Welburn, who's a consulting producer on this film, Um, Knows Julia and Steve for many years said, you know, would you guys, you know, really focus on, on the Chinese factory film? It's a fascinating topic and little known that so many factories in America are owned by Chinese ownership. This is not an isolated case at Fuyao. There are hundreds of factories in the US owned by Chinese owners. And um, so, anyway, long-winded way of saying that there was something just really special and unique in that footage. And so, you
2: were the first person to say that to us outside of Dayton, Ohio. And that that um, was really and, impactful. And that that award is a fifty
3: thousand dollar award, which went to Julia. Um, and I, th- I think believe some of that money was used toward the film. Um, then you guys pitched um, it for the international documentary. Uh, association in Amsterdam, and I think there was a flurry of activity. I was not there, but I heard um, from colleagues that there was lots and lots of interest from multiple partners. Um, and participant media at that point, Diane Wyerman and Elise Perlstein, who may be in the, in the house tonight, um, I think saw the film and jumped on board. So they really did the bulk of the production financing, um, and then Netflix came on and acquired it um, with Higher Ground Well,
1: who is Higher Ground, by the way?
3: <laughs> Higher Ground. The principals of Higher Ground are Michelle and Barack Obama, and they have a deal with Netflix where they um, they you know can get basically get on board projects and help promote them and. Um, that they believe in, they have a Frederick Douglass biopic and a, I think a, a film, um, a disability film called Crip Camp, and so they've put together a slate. And American Factory has the great honor of being the first film that will be released tonight on Netflix at 12:01 yeah. p.m. Very Pacific.
2: So. <laughs> and, and I want to say that um, yeah, so it's, it's it, it tell means, all your friends. It means a lot to us. Yeah, it, yeah. But the folks that Participant, we we knew them, we knew of them. You know. They have great reputations. Working with them was a joy because they're actual filmmakers and they know the nitty-gritty of all kinds of stuff. And so the funding, of course, was great. But it was also like we would call them every week and give them updates on how things were going. If there was something where we had a log jam, someone wasn't, like, talking to us anymore or we had a question about some weird legal thing that came up, they were always there for us, Every for you know, From that point on, it was like suddenly we had this infrastructure that really helped. Steve, I'm going to ask the last question
1: of you. American audiences can watch this film in a certain way. Chinese audiences can watch this film in a certain way. Chairman Chow can probably watch it in a unique way. And I'm wondering if Chairman Chow has seen it, what his reaction to it was, and what he thinks about how he and his company comes off.
2: He saw Chairman saw the film in June. He finally came back to the states. We showed it to the company in November of 2018 before it was locked and done. And Jeff Liu, the president who's in the film, saw it at that time. And the top attorney saw it. And then we showed it to them again in January, um, right before Sundance when it was done. And then the Chairman came back in June. And to. All, after all three screenings, and since then, they have been really gracious about it, which we were nervous. You know, we were nervous to show it to them. Uh, you know, we tried to make a fair film, but we also tried not to like pull our punches and not or hide from things that we felt journalistically we had to include. We we try to make a film that isn't looking at this through a lens of like midwestern anxiety or anything. Uh, we wanted to have build. Empathy for, for folks who, who, who are in opposition to each other on the union battle or culturally. Uh, the chairman was really has been really supportive. I mean, he said he liked it a lot. You know, I, don't, I can't talk to him directly, but through his translators, he said it really captures what they went through. I mean, he will say also that, um, you know, it was a rough beginning and things are better now. You know it's it, because we stopped filming at the end of 2017. I do have one last
1: question, and that is better now for the employees because I saw that OSHA has proposed a $700,000 fine against FUYA recently for exposing employees to multiple safety and health hazards. I also understand there's now forced overtime
2: and mandatory Saturday work. So, what's happening at the plant yeah. and workers? Well, well. No, bet, the chairman would say it's better. Depends who you ask, and again, this is true in the film too. Uh, you're looking at a huge endeavor through multiple points of view, and then they're, they're not going to align up. Uh, some folks like Bobby in the film, he's now making. He's been there long enough that he's he's, he's making like $19 an hour. Uh, other folks are still you know struggling at $14 or $15 an hour. Their turnover still really high. I mean. For a company that's five years old, they already have over five thousand former employees, which is dramatic. And you know, in the film, Jill mentioned something like three thousand, but it's now over five. Might might be close to six. Uh, so it's it's a very, it's a hard place to work. It you know people get fired a lot and people quit a lot. The OSHA fines are dramatic. It's one of the highest OSHA fines ever levied at a company in Ohio. I mean ever. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's not, I mean, the story is not over. It's not like, um, it's all, everything's all settled. Uh, and, and people will still criticize that company a lot, you know, and it's, it's, there's a duality too, because there's still jobs. There's still some of the best jobs you can get in Dayton, Ohio, in terms of pay and benefits. Uh, but also frustration levels still exist.
1: Steve, Julie, Lindsay, Chad, thank you for bringing us your film
2: yeah
5: thank you thank you you.
0: thanks for listening to academy conversations uncut we hope you enjoyed this unique access to a members only q and a at the academy be sure to like share and subscribe and help us reach film lovers around the world this podcast was produced by the academy of motion picture arts and sciences